Transit Voices with Ben Whitaker. Welcome to Transit Voices. This month we're speaking to Brandon from Greater Dayton RTA, who's telling us about the amazing technology of almost limitless range buses that they've been running, as well as removing all cash from vehicles and the benefits that brought to them. Without further ado, let's find out what one year of removing cash from buses has brought. Now, let's get talking. Welcome, Brandon Policicchio from Greater Dayton RTA. Super excited about today. So many people have been asking us about the big, big changes at RTA and the number of people who are listening into this will be immense. But let's get to know each other a bit more. I must admit, I don't recall ever meeting you in person, although we've been working together with GDRTA for a while. Can you just tell us a bit of your background of of how you got into the RTA and what sort of brought you into transit? Yeah, I've been in transit now for over 15 years. This wasn't the original plan. When I went to school at Ohio State, the goal was to become a teacher. But I just happened to find a job while I was there driving the campus bus service that's there. They employ a lot of students. They train you to get your CDL. So that got me kind of into the transit industry. When I graduated, I was able to get the opportunity to get a job as a supervisor just an hour from here in Columbus, Ohio at CODA. Worked there for several years and then Came to Dayton in October of 2012 as their uh, deputy operations officer, uh, was in that role for several years, and then now in my current role as the chief customer business development officer. So it wasn't the original plan, but um, like most people will probably talk to and find in transit, once you get into it, you love it and you kind of stay in it. Yeah, you're exactly right. Uh, so many people, e- even at, at Masabi, they never particularly had that in mind. But once you get into the public service side, there's a lot about public transit that is It just gets people drawn in. But you've been at uh, RTA for a while now. What have been some of the main challenges that have arrived on your desk to really engage with? I think some of the things, you know, looking back on what's going to be 10 years here, first getting into the role that I'm in and, and what were some things and challenges we needed to look at doing. A few of those were on the technology front. We had very antiquated, outdated communication systems, fair payment systems, and We've done really a complete overhaul over the past eight years, well over $20 million worth of investments in the technology to get us up to the 21st century. Those were some of the priorities that we had to have in place just due to the technical challenges, simple things like not being able to hear supervisors through the radio or drivers through the radio. You can't have that, a old antiquated system like that in place. The other thing too has been been keeping up with the assets that we have here is obviously a challenge. I can tell you we're very grateful here in Dayton and have had great leadership. When I look at what our fleet is today from when I first started, our oldest bus was a 1986 vehicle and it's as old as me. So when you look at this and you fact Aaron, where we're at today, our oldest bus is maybe three years old right now. So we've come a long way. Those 1980 trolleys were what uh, we looked at replacing here over the past several years. We're one of only a few agencies left to actually operate trackless trolleys here in the United States. So you have us, Philadelphia, San Francisco, and Seattle that are these still remaining cities that are operating the uh, trackless trolleys. And we just replaced that entire fleet of all 45 vehicles and 
We operate several lines over 120 miles of overhead uh, trolley electric infrastructure. So that's a pretty cool, unique aspect here of Dayton. But getting our uh, assets in a state of good repair, while it was a challenge, I believe we were successful at it, which has kind of put us in a great position now where I think some of those challenges might be arising for other agencies. I'm really weirded out by people removing trolleys when they have them today, especially with the focus on electric, getting diesels out of the centre of the towns and get them away from where they're blowing smoke into the faces of families and kids nearby. Trolleys are amazing because they don't have to carry batteries, they don't have to be recharged, they don't have range issues, they don't have the temperature issues. I mean, why on earth would somebody take a trolley system out if you've been maintaining and you've got it in a good state of repair, the, the quaternary system? That's a good question. I look at what we've done a little over the past decade in the decision to maintain trolleys here, and our board has been great about supporting that. The local community is supportive of the trolleys we've had here. So yeah, for us, it was a no-brainer when you look at maintaining the system from an environmental standpoint, as you just mentioned too, but also just we've kept those assets in place. We've got investments now to upgrade the entire infrastructure. It's in our capital plan. Over the next five to seven years, we're going to totally overhaul and redo the entire system, getting it more up to date. Some of the infrastructure is almost 80 years old in some places more than that. So it, it needs updated. But when you look at how long it's been able to withstand, for us, it was a no-brainer in, in terms of that. We changed trolleys, as I mentioned earlier, which I think made a difference for our system. These trolleys are able to go up to 15 miles off-wire which is huge for us because one, that allows us to expand our existing trolley infrastructure network, but it just allows us to be a little bit more nimble where your old school trackless trolleys used to only be able to barely get around a block, right? Now we can travel further, we can extend things, which has been very helpful. It's wonderful that battery tech is pure battery buses is still taking big leaps forward, but depending on what your your network is, I don't think it's all the way there yet. I'm delighted so many people invest in it now because every time you invest in the latest generation, you move it on, people understand more, you get better service and support. But if you've got good trolleys working, I I think it's way better. I sort of feel like if you already have relatively young diesel buses, I think it's one, obviously vehicle manufacturing is extremely delayed and things like that. It's just in my opinion, I think you ride out the life of that diesel instead of looking to try and replace sooner that diesel with electric battery buses. Because I just think the technology in the next you know, five to eight years is probably going to be so much better and you'll be better positioned with, I think, more advanced technologies than trying to scrap what you have in place right now. Now, I will say if you've got a very aging diesel fleet, obviously that is the way to go. I think even too, the funding will kind of push you there to begin with from the federal level. But I do think it's smart to hang on if you've got a young diesel fleet with the eye of what the future might look like. Um, So it's just going to be interesting to see what different agencies do, especially ones that have like CNG buses and things like that. You know, I always look at what were the investments you made to get to where you are today. And do you really want to abandon those investments so quickly when I don't think the technology is quite where it needs to be? I'm not saying it's not good. I just I just think it can be much better. I think the the obvious thing people really want to hear about, and I've been getting so many asking me about this, is uh, when are we going to hear the kind of a few months down the line for the RTA pulling out the fare boxes and removing cash from on vehicle. This has been something which uh, we've seen several European cities already 
take cash off vehicle and, and, and basically say, we want all of our riders to be pre-purchased before they board. And there are lots of different options. We make sure that people who want to use cash, we've got cash options and people who can use contactless EMV and mobile phones and other things can use those. It's something which, especially in big cities, we see huge time and speed advantages of multiple minutes per journey segments if people are not kind of standing on the footplate doing cash transactions on board. But it's been something that in the USA where cash on board is such a mainstay and people see it as a huge equity issue. People are thinking it's too early. There's so many uh, groups that you think might be marginalized by it. It's such a change to operations. Everyone wants to know, how did it go at RTA? Well, you know, I think this this really all started back when I first got here in 2012 and I sat in a meeting and we were looking at upgrading our current fare boxes and it was presented, you know, hey, that, you know, 1.2 million, we're going to update these fare boxes and all we're going to get is some pretty antiquated touch smart cards on the system. And I thought, wow, $1.2 million. And that's really all that we're getting. Knowing where entities like you mentioned Europe and looking at London and and the system that they have in place there, knowing what's out there, what's coming, that seemed like a lot of money to invest and simply not really getting ahead of the game, but really just kind of staying in pace with probably where we already had should have been in 2012, but just never made the effort to get there. So that conversation and saying, you know what, let's hold off on doing that. Let's set that aside and let's start looking to the future. You know, I recall back in 2013, we had a meeting with our senior staff group and we had members from Apple, IBM, which they had employed several uh, entities that had worked for TFL London on their smart card system came to Dayton, we were having conversations with them. There was interest in maybe looking at how could we turn iPads into devices on the vehicle, just kind of having general exploration discussions. And I think that really got a lot of the uh, senior staff and when we shared with our board interested in, okay, well, where's the future so that we're on the cutting edge but not necessarily the bleeding edge on certain things, because there are some negatives to being on the bleeding edge sometimes. And I think that that initial conversation we had with those folks really opened our eyes to what was out there. Then we started our research really on, okay, how did London and some of these other agencies get rid of cash on board their vehicles? And what mitigation factors did they account for, for those that this might adversely affect? You know, the irony is we even looked at several U.S. studies that were conducted in major cities about how they wanted to remove cash and and reading what they were intending to do. And, and what's interesting is to see, you know, none of those have come to fruition yet, but they obviously had the right roadmap. And I will say full disclosure, I think much more politics exist in large cities. So I think at the end of the day, I've talked to several entities from larger cities and it, 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 boy, it is what it is. It's politics and it's the operational complexities of some of those larger systems that I think make it a daunting task to even think about. So being, you know, a medium-sized agency, we're able to be a little bit more nimble. But I think for us, at the end of the day, it was about, we viewed accepting cash as being able to deliver less equitable services. While some, and I understand people's views about seeing cash and taking it away as presenting an equity issue, particularly in the transit sphere, I felt that just through research, that cash was really creating an inequity. When you look at it from the standpoint of account-based payments and fair capping, the individual who's typically paying with cash is unbanked, underbanked, probably low income, uses us 
as their main source of transportation. So those individuals, while unable to financially afford the upfront costs of monthly passes and things like that, by the end of the month, we're paying almost double. So cash was the leading factor for that inequity because that was their only source of being able to pay. So by using that as the main driving force for what we were doing, because we really believed that we could help those that really had been kind of plagued by the typical transit fare payment type approaches. We really felt that that was kind of the silver bullet in doing all of this. And that's what really drove everything that we did. And we made everything just very methodical, reviewing our different steps along the way, making sure we were clear in our messaging that we're not taking cash out of our system. We're just simply removing it from the vehicle, talking about access for those individuals to take their cash to convenient locations and load it. And at the end of the day, explain the benefit to that individual who might be concerned about not being able to utilize cash anymore and just helping them to understand how they will be saving money under this new system. And we just got to take the cash away in order to do that. So, you know, we've come a long way over the past three, four years from removing transfers to not making our system as complicated from basic fares perspective. And then, you know, removing tokens. We were one of the few agencies left selling tokens probably four years ago. We've come a long way from having tokens to not accepting cash on board. But I think at the end of the day, while the fare boxes are still on our vehicles, they have a cover over them. We don't access them. At some point, we will remove them. I know we're ordering in new buses where they're not going to be installed on them at all. So we are fully cashless on board. They just still reside on the buses at this time. And there's not anything goes without hiccups. We've obviously had hiccups and things we've kind of had to adjust to create where there were challenges, put some solutions in place to help customers have better access. But all in all, I, I, I think it's been very successful. And I just think the nature of how our system's set up, we're a hub and spoke system here in Dayton, Ohio, the ability to have everyone, for the most part, 80% of our customers traverse through our downtown transit center, having ticket vending machines there obviously was a benefit to us. I know that could get a little more challenging when you're in a grid system. I just think all this, the stars aligned and we made shifts in getting people off of cash and off of the old fair payment system methodically along the way to get where we were at. I really like how you very much identified that one of the anti-equity issues around cash and habits around cash is that the best fares and the cheapest fares are available to the richest people. In London, annual passes, that's someone who can put several thousand dollars into an annual pass. They have to have a lot of spare cash to do that, and then they get the cheapest fares. And that's completely crazy. We need it to be the other way around. So the the lovely thing with the account-based ticketing capping is even if somebody's only doing tiny little cash top-ups every time at a convenience store, they are getting capped at the weeklies and monthlies as well without having to stump up the cash at the beginning. And that can really help. One of the things that one of our customers in the United Kingdom did, Preston Buses, was they ran a time trial where they saw how many customers they could get onto the vehicle with them paying in cash as they boarded and how many people they could get on the bus in a given time if they were pre-purchased, either using cards or mobile phones or seat paper tickets or anything else. And they found it was an average of two seconds a person to board with a pre-purchase ticket, pretty much any sort, and about 15 seconds to board people on average who were chatting to the driver and, and paying with cash. There was a 10 to 15 second speed up per passenger in getting them to not pay in cash. And especially where you've got a a service where lots of people are boarding, that added up to minutes per segment. And so what we saw was 
the primary advantage that in one person's journey, the vehicle spent less time selling tickets, but the secondary benefit that the vehicle got all the way around the route and came back again. So the same number of vehicles could give you more frequency, lower headways, and more capacity because the number of seats per hour going past every stop would get bigger. So you ended up with faster journeys, more capacity, higher frequency, all coming from making changes to fare purchasing and making sure it wasn't on board. Have you found any changes in Dayton on the average speed of vehicles or keeping to time or that you've been able to squeeze a bit more frequency out of the same number of vehicles thanks to going completely cashless on board? Ben, I get asked that question a lot. And unfortunately, we don't have any quantitative type proof to show that that's what's happening, although I believe it is. A lot of ours is more you know, qualitative and hearing from customers that they notice a difference how quickly they're able to get on board, drivers noticing it. The reason we don't have any real quantitative measures on that is, is unfortunately when we rolled this out, it was all during the pandemic period. So with our ridership being down, obviously that impacted how on time our vehicles were. And so when you try to look at like our vehicles more on time, I'm sure obviously to the experiment you mentioned there in Europe where they timed the differences, obviously I'm sure we could easily show the difference between someone getting on with cash versus card. But because ridership had gotten so low, on-time performance naturally increased because you didn't have many people boarding at one time. So it got lost in the mix that being able to quantify and show that benefit of faster boardings due to prepaid and faster processing type devices on the vehicle like we have right now in the current fare payment system. So like I said, qualitative wise, we hear from the drivers all the time and customers how they notice how quickly that on and off process is. But unfortunately, we don't really have any numbers to really give because it's honestly just, it's kind of lost in that natural on-time performance quality of service benefit we fortunately got, but unfortunately got due to decline in ridership. But ridership is recovering pretty rapidly now, especially on bus. So hopefully within the next few months, we'll be back up at a ridership level that's comparable. And then we can look at the on-time performance. Maybe when it all comes out in the, in the numbers, we'll be able to see whether or not that allows timetables to kind of tighten up thanks to knowing that uh, you can get the vehicles around faster, because especially at uh, peak time. They're not spending as much time idling, trying to be a shop, and more time actually driving around being a useful vehicle thanks to pre-purchase. One of the other things that was done as part of going cashless is trying to make sure that there's enough off-board top-up and purchase points that aren't necessarily just in a transit center but are elsewhere. What we've seen as part of TFL going cashless was they made sure there were more and more convenience stores further out that did allow people who wanted to use cash to make top-ups. Can you just describe a bit of what you did, as well as the ticket vending machines at the transit centre, how you got cash digitization and, and cash injection points further out that weren't necessarily TVMs under your control? When we did this, we first recognised the benefit we had in, in the fact that we run a hub and spoke system and that over 80% of our customers travel through our downtown area. So we knew having ticket vending machines that accepted cash, that was going to be a huge win for us because it just was a natural location for all of that to occur. So that is where the bulk of our cash transactions to load funds onto accounts takes place. But we do have activity at our various retail locations. We looked into that before we did all of this. Obviously, we looked at it, we brought it in even closer to look at a quarter mile versus a half mile in terms of what in our route vicinity are all these locations. 
what are the specific locations, making sure to go out and test that and look to see how that was functioning. And, you know, that's something we communicate and promote to everyone that those places are out there. We're lucky that several transit agencies here in the state of Ohio are also on the Masabi platform. So together, we're actually working to look at a major grocery store company and talk to them about, hey, we need you to get signed on to this retail network. Because when we talk to our customers and we, where do you frequent most business location wise and retail locations, you know, this grocery chain came up and it's like, you know, you guys don't have this feature, but we know you do accept these other types of retail cash topping up services that other places have. So that's been something that we're working on, but it's very much been a benefit to us because again, it just allows access for individuals while they may be grocery shopping or doing something else to be able to take that time to also then load funds to their accounts. So that was really critical to us because that was one of the mitigating factors that we looked at by taking cash off board, we had to provide a substantial number of locations that are close to our bus routes that allowed people the opportunity to do that and have the ability to go to more than just a ticket vending machine at our transit centers. I mean, you've got what, 300 retail partners now? in different locations that are involved. Is that right? Obviously, when we started this, the numbers were a lot larger because it was before the pandemic. We've lost some retail over time, but we we have probably close to 150 retail locations that I would say are within a quarter mile of our routes. But yeah, if you look at our total county for which we serve, it's close to that 300 number in terms of locations that people can go to. Well, hopefully that'll increase with this new grocery store uh, partner if they, they come on board. But I think it's really lovely where... Instead of one agency having to make all that headway on its own, because you and some of the other agencies nearby and then in other states elsewhere are all doing the same thing, moving away from having to handle every dollar yourselves and saying, we're gonna, we want retailers and other partners to do this. And if they're engaging at a nationwide level with getting these big retailers and grocery stores to enable this feature, they're doing that in one integration and not having to integrate specifically for RTA and then specifically for Easy Fair and specifically for you know, other major cities. They can do it in one hit. And I think that, that might be one of the benefits of shared platforms for top-up, shared platforms for retail, where every agency doesn't have to kind of roll your own and negotiate individually. You now can be part of a sort of larger group negotiation and get the attention of much bigger entities that might not do something just for Dayton on its own. Is that fair? That's absolutely fair. When we look at it, we're not approaching it from, hey, this is a way for you as a business to make revenue. Because obviously we know transit, unless you're maybe in a much larger city, we're probably a small player. We, you know, we don't compare to like a utility company, somebody going in and paying their electric bill, obviously, where there could be a potential revenue for those retail outlets. But What we hone in on is it's more traffic that could come into your store because we know this is where our customers go. And it's likely that if they're in there to simply top up, they may otherwise buy something else while they're there. And oh, by the way, your competitor has it. You guys don't yet. So, you know, when they're looking at different stores, they may choose to go there over here simply because they have the ability to top up while they're there. I mean, when you look at a transit rider and we definitely were aware of some of the challenges and I can understand even the arguments today about how 
This could be additional time that an individual needs to spend because we removed cash on board. I, you know, it's hard to argue with that. I would argue over time, it may not be that much more time that they have to spend if it's being combined with maybe some other trip, like going to the grocery store, because we understand how precious time is for those that are traveling on transit. They obviously don't have the luxury of being able to get in a car to travel necessarily 20 minutes down the street to a grocery store. It might take them maybe an hour and a half. So anytime we can shave off by allowing them to do more things at one location. These retail outlets certainly help with that. Back to the agency side, it's a huge removal of a bunch of activity that the drivers have to undertake. If the driver is no longer acting as someone who is telling people about tickets, taking instructions for tickets and helping people with cash transactions at the front of the bus. But also there's that equipment, which I think you were looking at a million dollars to do an upgrade to your fare boxes, but that's just the fare box. There's also the maintenance of the fare box and the, the cash vaulting and counting and handling back at the depot. I mean, your overall operational savings that you think you might be able to make by not having to deal with onboard fare boxes and cash. I mean, have you quantified that versus the more dematerialized approach you're now taking? I will say that obviously you can equate the cost. It's probably very marginal. When a fare box breaks down, you're interrupting service, pulling the fare box off. There was a point towards the end with our old fare boxes where it just was not worth us going out if that vehicle maybe had two hours left on the street to bring a mechanic out to make that fix. We just basically said, just provide free fares for the next two hours. So there's that revenue lost there in that scenario based off that operational decision. There's the cost of, depending on how the organization's set up, there may be several, you know, maybe not so much from the finance side of things, but from the maintenance side, you may have several full-time staff simply dedicated to maintaining the fare box system. Now more than ever in a time where transit agencies are in need of hiring mechanics and operators, you know, to be able to take a system typically in the transit industry, people that are working on your fare box were probably mechanics at one point in time, and they just moved through job transitions and things like that. Even at some agencies, I've heard that's like the top position to get to is to be working on fare boxes in terms of pay. So at a time where if you could simply update your system, re- remove that aspect of needing to maintain fault field fare boxes, those employees can now be moved over to fill vacancies that might be in a maintenance department because you can't hire enough maintenance workers. So now you can finally get back to upkeeping your fleet because you haven't been able to keep up with it because you've been down on mechanics. So you can redistribute administrative staff to other areas at this point in time because just you you have those natural vacancies due to hiring challenges in our industry. So for us, we didn't have this large dedicated group to maintain our fare boxes, but we certainly looked at the cost, overall cost of maintaining the fare box and what we would save by that. And there are savings to it. We can have a range of what we think we're likely saving from it. But at the end of the day, too, I think more importantly, like with most technology, I'll argue that fare collection is one thing. If you can advance that technology, there is savings there. The only other real savings technology type transit piece that I've ever seen is automated vehicle maintenance monitoring to be able to 
to discover a maintenance issue before it happens and becomes a larger expensive cost. Those that's where technology I think can actually truly save an agency a lot of money. But I think with like fair technology, yes, we can save money doing that. But I think what's the bigger sell is the benefit that it brings to the customer and the ease of operation and the operational advantages that you get as a result of replacing antiquated old fare boxes with the new advanced type fare boxes that are out there or fair systems, I should say, that are out there. I mean, how many months has it been now since you uh, stopped taking cash on board? We stopped taking cash in November of last year. One year. So would you say one year in, once you got through the initial stage of re-education and outreach and people saying, you know, this is annoying, are you feeling that there are some disenfranchised riders who are no longer able to ride? Or you say with a couple of grumbles, people are still able to ride and that's kind of worked and, and nobody's lives has been really hit? Or do you still have some groups that you think are not addressed by the, the current fair payments options? So, you know, I will note before we took cash off the vehicle in November of last year, our cast onboard cash usage in September had gotten down to 10%. So we really were just looking at transitioning 10% of our ridership over officially in November to that. There are some things we're still dealing with, homeless and, and how those individuals may have access to the system or what they might have on them in terms of cash and their access to being able to get to maybe some of our locations and things like that. But we put a couple mitigating things in place. We stole this from London. We, we have a one more journey feature where... Uh, an individual's accounts allowed to go negative. So that allows them so that they're not stranded or they're able to get to a retail outlet or a, a ticket vending machine location um, to do that. We also, and we rely heavily on our operators to, to sort of monitor this, but if an individual gets on and it's clear that they were not aware that we don't accept cash, we will allow them the board, but they need to disembark at one of our transit centers where they can put that cash onto value onto a card. Obviously, you're, there's always going to be that those couple people that'll take advantage of that and try to play that that game. But you know, that, that's not a reason to not do something. And you have that same type of scenario on old fair payment systems too. It, just because you took cash off didn't mean that kind of game wasn't being played by a small group of people. So, you know, I'd say overall, you know, our biggest thing now is to really try and get our fares to a level that we believe that our customers, especially those that are maybe in that low income area at a fair price that is reasonable and makes sense for them. That's really something that we're trying to, to look at implementing and getting in place. But other than that, there, there really isn't too many things. There's, there's always going to be these small pockets of challenges that I just don't know how we're going to fix that. But when you look at the percentage of that group of maybe people, it's just so small that to change the entire system, just simply based off of that, just wouldn't make any sense, especially given the kind of mitigation things we have in place, like the one more journey and allowing people to board if they honestly do not have the payment system. And, and I think too, with the future, when we talk about contactless EMV, I know we're piloting that this year and that's coming. And I really think that's another headway we're going to be able to make into the area of being able to help individuals that might be receiving benefits through maybe a federal or state program. Because a lot of those programs, believe it or not, are cashless. You know, individuals have to have either a bank issued card or a checking or savings account. They're simply just getting the cash from checking, taking money out of an ATM or taking the cash out of their account. So if we're able to get these benefit cards 
as being able to be utilized through contactless EMV, that's another way for people to take their transit benefits and being able to activate them and use them actually on the vehicle. And they don't even need a smart card at that point in time. So there's still great opportunity out there, I think, to expand the ease of use of a cashless onboard system. But for the most part, there's a few little things that obviously I just don't know if we'll be able to fix those for some groups. But um, at the end of the day, I think for the vast majority, 98%, if not more, it's system that's working. I'm delighted to hear that so many passengers and drivers have commented on how, how much quicker and easier they're finding boarding and just operating and moving everything on. I think that's where we want to get to, as well as taking the cost of all this handling and, and issuing media out. That's been super interesting, and uh, we're delighted to come on that journey with you. And hopefully, a lot of the things that you're kind of spearheading at Dayton will really help some other agencies to then follow some of that playbook, get themselves to a position where they, they don't have to be issuing media on board a bus, and, uh, handling all the cash there. You're listening to Transit Voices, Boondoggle versus the Underdog. Before we wrap up, a couple of the things that I'd love to find out from different transit experts on the operating side is our, our boondoggles and underdogs section. So, you know, there's always a lot of hype. There's always a lot of new technology and new ideas, uh, not always technology ideas. And I, I'd love you to just pick out from your viewpoint, which you think the current overhyped technology is that you think should get back to the back burner and is wasting too much uh, management time and money? And conversely, what the, the underdog is, the, the new idea or the new technology, which you think can really, really move the needle for agencies and riders, but isn't getting as much airtime as you think it should and we should put more into it. You know, there's a lot of hype around electric vehicles and where that's going in the future. And I do think that that's great. I do think there's a lot of challenges still that exist out there that need to be resolved in terms of, especially in larger cities, are grids able to handle this? What is the true cost of implementing this? I do think, obviously, that's the future. Electric vehicles are the future. Don't necessarily disagree with that. But I think that's one where I, I still feel it's an area that can get very distracting. And you just got to, as an agency, I think, understand, are you in a position to go there anytime soon? And if not, just kick that to the side and let that be there. The biggest one, I will say, the, the biggest distractor is autonomous vehicles, in my opinion. I think, especially in the transit world, I just don't see that happening anytime soon. I still think there's a lot of things that need to be worked out. I think it's great that there's people out there working on it and that, and that it's there. But other than having just some demo autonomous vehicle, I mean, that's great. But I think at the end of the day, that's just something that's just not there yet. And, and transit agencies, I think, could get lost in that. Yeah, I fully Go agree ahead. with you. It's the number of people who've trialed the same little autonomous uh, minibus at low speeds in very, very controlled metropolitan area and found that it barely makes any difference at all. And there was no need for every city to do to run that same pilot to get the same results. I wonder why just to be on the bandwagon and say, hey, we're a smart city, so many people ran the same pilot and got the same results and all of them are closing those and not continuing them because the technology isn't ready yet. And it's, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. That is definitely a boondoggle and people should have stopped spending money on that until it was a bit more ready and they should have stopped a while ago after the first few pilots. So what's your what's your underdog? What is the thing you think we should pay a bit more attention to 
more attention should be given in the realm of, of fair collection and getting those systems updated. There's an opportunity now with, especially in the United States, with the amount of federal funding that's made available that I think that should be not necessarily to go cashless on board, but to move to account-based payments and, and really get simplified fair structures in place is something that agencies can focus on. And then I think it's something that can make a big difference. Obviously, we've seen a difference here when we've done that. So I definitely think that that's something because what that, in my opinion, leads to is that, you know, it coincides with the ability to pay for multimodal travel and trip planning and you know, while I think mobility as a service is a great concept and, and it's out there and it's something to try and get to, I just think that there's some, they're not technical challenges. I think there are more the players challenging and working together in certain sectors to allow something like that to happen. But I don't, you can't ever conceptualize getting to that space of being able to plan and pay for, you know, multiple services in one place if you don't have advanced fare payments system as your core backbone to that, you just can't even have that discussion. So I think, you know, if you want to talk about providing access to more services, integrating multiple modes, micro transit, bike share, scooters, all that sort of stuff, it really comes back to how do you make that easy to pay for, you know, in one place and plan in one place and you can't pay for it all through antiquated fare systems. You need to get on those next generation fare systems that are account-based, that are open, that allow for that type of integration to, to even begin having those conversations. So I think that's kind of I think it starts with fair systems, that entry into even being able to have a discussion about that that future vision of you know mobility as a service. Interesting. I have a fairly provocative view on mass, which is that I think it addresses the needs of a niche rather than the bulk of riders. And as such, maybe the agencies should, as you said, upgrade their fare collection system, have account-based ticketing and an open platform, but my provocative view is that maybe the agency itself shouldn't be investing to try and create the umbrella and integrate everything because if that's only ever for a niche, it shouldn't be what you're doing a big investment for. And as far as I can tell, I mean, uh, you know, Dayton already has got your ticketing integrated into Transit App, which is a multimodal journey planner that does allow you to get into bike and scooter hire and other things. It's just almost where there's the private sector doing some of the, the expensive kind of integration for all of those other pieces. I sort of question whether the agencies should be just like a, another minibus, another automated minibus pilot. Should the agencies be doing yet another mass pilot or should they just open up the APIs and leave that for other people to maybe integrate together and serve that niche of riders? Try and concentrate mainly as the agency on doing account-based ticketing and open and serving the, the, the main clients first and not necessarily getting attracted to the trying to be the umbrella for everything. Where we've done A-B testing and had some customers with a very simple ticketing app and some customers with a multimodal doing everything app, most regular commuters still stuck to the simple ticketing. Uh, it was kind of 90-odd percent stuck to a simple app because they knew where they were going and what they did and how to get around that town. And there is a niche we're doing an unfamiliar journey that might want multimodal and everything else. But just because that niche wants it, it doesn't mean you have to force your regular rider to do a zip code to zip code lookup with loads and loads of new options that they don't want. And they're just like, I know where the bus number 56 is. 
I don't need any of this stuff. I just worry that the fantasy of what this great joined up journey might be, might be solving problems the general public just don't care about. I totally agree with you. Uh, our jobs transporting people and like advanced fare systems, it takes us out of really being overly involved in that side of the business where really it allows us to focus on driving people, customer service, um, those sorts of things. We're not tech. We're not uh, the tech industry. We know how to make sure equity is involved in things that we do, but we definitely are not the ones who should be building technical applications. I definitely agree with that. Yeah, it's, it's related to your point on taking some maintenance engineers that purely maintain payment devices and actually get those maintenance engineers maintaining a vehicle that's going to move. And it's almost the core of the transit agency is to make vehicles move, get the fair offering right in terms of the, the prices and its availability to your ridership. But the less you can spend trying to maintain fare and cash equipment, the better. The less time you're spending trying to negotiate with Uber or, or other scooter people, the better. And it's kind of focusing on that core. We'll have to see how that plays out in the industry and how many people spend more money on another mass trial. Who's who of transit? But one last question, Brandon, before we hang up for the day. Who's an, uh, a voice that we should speak to next? Who is it that's doing something really interesting that you think other agency and, and uh, transit technology folks would love to hear their story and the one they're working on? So I would say that uh, there's two people that come to mind. One's Jerome Horn. He's a gentleman that I follow on Twitter and have engaged with. He uh, originally was from Indigo in Indianapolis, that transit system. Now he works with the transit center. And I think... Uh, He's very interesting to follow, and it's very interesting to watch him as he engages with the transit community, those that are very interested in transit from the planners to the, you know, to the riders. I, I think he has some interesting thoughts on things and where they're at, and he's kind of, I can assume, in that more of that younger generation, so kind of can provide a unique perspective on their view of um, transit, especially to he just everyone he follows. And then I would say... Our friends over at CODA, I think they were doing a lot of interesting things. Sophia Moore, who's our chief innovation and technology officer, I think are doing some, you know, really innovative things from that perspective. And I think they could probably provide a little insight. I, I talk with them a lot. They're interested in going cashless on board and, and wanting to get there someday. And they're actively trying to tackle those things right now and get to that space. So I think that would be another interesting group uh, or person to um, talk to. Fantastic. Thank you, Brandon. And thank you so much for coming here today and, uh, and, and giving everyone a, a window in on going cashless. It's a really big step. And uh, I think a lot of agencies are going to benefit from the example and the results that you get in date. So Thank you so much for coming on board today. And I hope we, uh, we get another update uh, in a year's time when the ridership is there so we can see how much faster the vehicles have really got off the back of this on your network. Absolutely. I uh, appreciate talking to you today, Ben, and taking the time to learn a little bit about the... Wow, fantastic to hear from Brandon about the electric trolley buses giving them infinite range. And of course, that they have been successful in taking cash off the buses. All agencies in the USA can now take heart that this is possible and can improve equity and get people away from the more expensive single fares. We're going to return to them in, at the two-year mark and make sure we uh, update you on how that's going. Do join us next time to find out more from the world of transit. You've listened to Transit Voices, the podcast by transit nerds for transit nerds. Don't forget to subscribe to Transit Voices to keep up with the latest editions on your favorite podcast platform.